0: The Chumba Life is for everybody, so go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War Premium, episode number 41. This is going to be a bit of a deep dive into the evolution of French military theory before and during the war. This episode was prompted by me picking up a copy of Flesh and Steel During the Great War, The Transformation of the French Army and the Invention of Modern Warfare by Michael uh, Goya, uh, Hugh Strachan, and uh, Andrew Urfendel, which is certainly, or almost certainly, the best English-language source on the evolution of French military doctrine before and during the war uh, that I have personally come across. One of the reasons that I decided to tackle this topic is due to the general evaluation of the French army during the war, and its overall incredibly negative nature. There's a very good reason for this negative evaluation. The French attacks at the start of the war were catastrophic. They were almost war-losing failures. Uh, That's how bad they were. And then over the next three years, the army basically threw itself against the German defenses until the army almost fell apart into mutiny in 1917. Throughout all of this, just on a surface level, it's easy to assume that the army did not learn or improve. Once we start digging into the details, I think it will become obvious that this is not correct. There were certainly many mistakes made by the French military, which we will spend most of the next two episodes discussing. But that did not mean that the French military did not grow and evolve just as quickly as the other armies that it was fighting. Today, we will start with the Franco-Prussian War, and then move forward through the last decades of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th. Over these years, the French military would, just like every other army, have to try and grapple with the incredible pace of technological advancement. Their conclusions and the evolutions that they made based on those technological changes would be different than some of their neighbors, but many, or most, would be the exact same conclusions drawn by the German or Russian military leaders. Then the war came, and trying to improve tactics, strategy, and armaments became much more important. Those wartime experiences will be the topic for our next episode, uh, but I do want to drop this quote from Flesh and Steel uh, here at the beginning, which I think gives a pretty good indication of where all of this is going. Quote, by the time of the armistice on 11 November 1918, the victorious French army was more modernized than any other army in the world. No longer did its infantry have to go on foot in order to move from one point of the front to the other. When it attacked, it did so with light tanks acting in conjunction with groups of combat or tactical subunits of between 15 and 20 men that were equipped with powerful weapons and surrounded by accurate fire from machine gun sections, mortars, and 37mm guns. It is impossible to talk about the French army in the First World War without starting the story during the Franco-Prussian War. This conflict was important for all of the reasons that a country's previous large conflict is always important when determining the future course of the military. In this case, it went even further, though, and that's mostly due to the timing of the two wars. The Franco-Prussian War occurred in 1870 and it ended in 1871, and this was roughly 44 years before the French went to war in 1914. This was just long enough to allow the next generation of French generals who had spent their entire careers studying the Franco-Prussian War to come into leadership positions. This created an atmosphere where many of the men who would be leading the French army in 1914 were raised in a climate that was desperate to try and make sure that the failures of 1870 did not occur in the next war. Now, this is different than, I'll just take the First World War to Second World War as an example, where in that time between 1918 and 1939, you see a lot of these same people, or at least people who had experiences during the First World War, commanding in the Second World War. In this case, between the Franco-Prussian and the First World War, many of the people with combat experience uh, during the Franco-Prussian War were too old in 1914 or were at the very end of their careers and weren't really shaping military thought at that point. In this case, though... Uh, What you see is you see like echoes of the previous war affecting military thought and not the actual experiences um, of that war. And that's important uh, when considering the severity of some of the French uh, alterations in theory, uh, especially in the run-up in the decade before the First World War. Now, after the Franco-Prussian War, there were many problems that the French felt had caused the failures uh, in 1870. There were issues with the mobilization process, which was slower than the German mobilization. There were also issues in the command structure and the general lack of staff knowledge and skill. However, the number one reason that was cited for the French defeat was the army's passivity. It did not seek out the enemy in an effective and aggressive fashion. These deficiencies, or at least perceived deficiencies, would affect the French army in a number of ways over the next forty years. When trying to fix these problems, the French would turn to the Prussian style and started to emulate many of the Prussian military processes and structures. Some of these emulations were uh, drastically would drastically change the military in France. In 1870, compulsory military service would be put in place, a very obvious influence. However, some of the influences were far less obvious, but in the long run were just as impactful. One example of this is that when French officers would write for military publications in the years after the war, It was seen as a requirement that they use German authors as sources, and that they quote German military thinkers. The Prussians were seen as the pinnacle of military thought and knowledge at this time, and so their thought had to be used when working with and evolving French military thought. This general mindset of inferiority in the years after the 1870s would then alter French thinking as they tried to find ways that they were better than the Germans, which caused them to overvalue some qualities of the French army that they saw as uniquely French. It's probably important to state that this emulation of the Prussian military was in no way limited to France, and in the years after the Franco-Prussian war, many of the armies of Europe would make the exact same adaptations for the exact same reasons, although they would do so to greater and lesser degrees. One area that saw Prussian influence was in organization and preparations. The army was organized into permanent army corps that were prepared in peacetime but were then greatly expanded in times of war. These were based in specific geographical areas, and the corps commands were seen as very important positions for military officers to occupy. A new permanent staff office was also created in 1874, and a general staff would come along with this, along with the leadership setup that tried to make sure that the military leaders were ready for war when there was no ambiguity about who would be in overall command. There would also be a minister of war, and this was separate from the commander of the armies and also separate from the general staff, with all three structures being seen as having roughly equal power during peacetime. These three groups, or people, were kept very purposefully separate to prevent the possibility of the military uniting behind a leader and giving that leader uh, the ability to gain too much political power in France. This was all done by the political leaders in France to make sure that there was no military coup or anything like that. Due to this arrangement and the overall culture of the French military, the corps commanders would gain a good amount of autonomy. So, for example, the army corps commanders were in charge of maneuvers, and they were generally able to run their corps how they saw fit from a strategic and tactical perspective. This setup, this general setup, gave the general feeling of antagonism between the corps commanders, who were generally quite old, and the officers of the general staff, who were generally younger and had generally more modern ideas. Much of our conversations today will be around this antagonism, as both groups had very different views on the type of war that France should be planning and preparing for. Before these antagonisms really got going, though, it was felt that the French had to fix the problems that had been identified with staff work during the war with the Prussians, and to do this, they once again looked to the Prussian model, and specifically their war academy, the Kriegs Academy. Instead of having just one war college, the French would have two. The first would be the École Polytechnique, uh, and the other being the school at Saint-Serre. These colleges had very different curriculum. The Polytechnique was based around providing engineers and artillery officers with a deep understanding of the technical and scientific facets of their arms. So these officers would come out of college with a good understanding of the current technology, and also of current technological trends. On the other side was the School of Saint-Serre. This was a school that that would train many infantry and cavalry officers, and the curriculum was focused heavily on history-based learning and understanding of modern military theory. When these two sets of officers came together, they were clearly at odds with what they expected the proper military doctrine to be, a disconnect that would only increase with time. The officers from the Polytechnique uh, indexed technology heavily in their conclusions. Too much, if you would have asked a graduate of Saint-Serre. The officers at Saint-Serre often completely ignored technological advancements in their thinking, believing that they did not at all change the basic theories of war. And even if they did try and evaluate the technology, they would often come to what would prove to be incorrect conclusions. A great example of this was the belief that the increases in firepower in the last decades before the First World War were actually... actually more beneficial to the attackers than the defenders. Due to the built-in lack of centralization of command in the French army, over the forty years after 1870, military thought would swing back and forth between several different overriding theories of warfare. These swings would happen based on who was in charge at the time, what their beliefs had been as a younger officer, and then who was chosen to write regulations for the army. When discussing what an army is going to do in a war, or at least what it planned to do, these regulations were critical. But the French had many problems in creating and using the regulations that they produced. The first was simply that they were incredibly long, mostly due to the changes in French military theory over the years. Often this would result in regulations slowly growing as new theories were added, but not all the old information was removed. As an example, in 1888, The French regulations were a staggering 2,300 pages, 2.5 times more than the German regulations. Many officers did not even bother to read them, or even if they did, they did not actually apply them to the overall directions for their units. This would lead one French officer, Captain André Chamadre, to say, Our officers are crushed by the ever-increasing burden of your empty, hollow regulations, teeming with contradictions and ambiguities. They barely have the time to become familiar with them and have no time at all to put them into practice. Besides, your regulations are replaced so often that even a lifetime would not be enough to learn them all. We see them changing all the time, and we see the new ones are just as bad as their predecessors, and so in the end we lose interest and regard them with indifference."
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So the regulations were very lengthy. Some commanders chose to ignore them entirely, but they were the officially sanctioned publications about how the French army planned to fight, and so we have to talk about them a little bit. We will start with the 1875 regulation, the first full rework after the defeat at the hands of the Prussians. Obviously, there were many regulations, uh, so we are just going to focus on the instructions provided on how to launch an attack on an enemy. The reason I have chosen this topic to focus on is because it would be the failure of the French attacks in 1914 that would fall under such criticism, and so we will focus on the evolution of the French theory on how to launch those attacks the 1875 regulations would contain a system that looking back seems pretty reasonable so the attack would be launched in extended order which means a loose formation not shoulder to shoulder or close order as previously used the infantry company was seen as the standard combat unit with each company making up an attacking front of about 150 meters with the men spaced out to a depth of 500 meters For any attack, there would be artillery preparation, with the goal of obtaining fire superiority over the defending force. It was envisioned that the infantry attack would start at about 2,000 meters from the enemy, and they would advance up to about 800 meters at a pretty normal marching speed. Then, after arriving at 800 meters, the type of advance would change, because it was at this point that it was considered that the infantry was in combat, or in the deadly zone of combat. So instead of slowly marching forward, the infantry companies would start moving forward in smaller subunits, with each moving forward in rushes and utilizing both geographical features as cover but also the covering fire provided by other subunits. These disjointed rushes would continue until the unit was able to reach a point 300 meters from the enemy positions. At 300 meters, the company officer would be responsible for pushing forward any necessary reserves to try and get to a density of one man per meter of front of the attack. Roughly the same style of advance would then continue, after the company became a bit more condensed, as it rushed and sprinted forward and utilized as much cover as could be found. Then at 50 meters, the infantry would shift into a dead sprint and sort of just assault the enemy positions as quickly as possible. In theory, at this point, the infantry combined with the artillery had gained the upper hand with suppressing fire, making the attack successful. Hand-to-hand combat was still expected, and so the men would still use the bayonet. There are a few things to remember about these regulations and the world in which they existed in. When they were written in 1875, there were very few machine guns in the army, and what machine guns were available were of the Gatling gun variety. Artillery was still breech-loading cannon of the smoothbore variety, a smooth-bore variety and they had a pretty low rate of fire. Infantry rifles were breech-loading, uh, but they still used black powder, and that meant a lot of smoke. And overall, the firepower of the defenders would be roughly similar to what had been present during the Franco-Prussian War. When these regulations were written and then published by staff officers there was some concern in the upper echelons of the french army command mostly around the pushing down of command responsibility to the company level which would be commanded by a captain there was also a huge amount of responsibility placed on even lower level officers to keep their men moving forward and organized instead of just stuck under some cover forever This skepticism resulted in these 1875 regulations never really being put into practice, and the army just mostly muddled through for a few more years. The next full rework of infantry regulations would not occur until 8 years later, in 1883. These regulations would begin a trend, which would continue for the rest of the century. It could probably be described as the French army returning to its Napoleonic roots. This meant an emphasis on shock over firepower, an argument that you may remember from our cavalry episodes. Basically, over the course of the two decades between about 1893 and about 1903, the French army would revert back to shock instead of shifting to a firepower theory of thought, in The 1875 regulations contained infantry companies moving forward in loose order, at a depth of 500 meters, and this would slowly disappear. Instead, it was altered so that the company was bunched towards the front, with the logic that this would help maintain its forward momentum. Instead of using cover and moving forward in bursts, it was expected that once they started moving, the infantry unit would continue forward no matter what. The logic for this was that seeking out cover and stopping to use that cover slowed the advance, which just left the attacking units in the deadly fire zone for a longer period of time. Another important change was that with all of these changes based around concentration and momentum, it was also believed that the captain, whose company was mostly just a projectile to be fired by its commanding officers, did not have the appropriate information to make decisions. Therefore, decisions on where, when, and how to attack were bumped up the ladder a bit, and instead rested with the brigade commander it was believed that this officer would be able to make the would ha- be able to have the proper context on the best point to attack it was around 1900 that this trend began to break down kind of and most of this shift was based around technological advances the increases in firepower and just as importantly the effective engagement ranges for weapons that was present at this time had what i think was a pretty obvious effect on military thought the attacking lines would be moved to being more dispersed again out of what was felt to be necessity. There was also a belief that smaller units, usually down to an infantry section, was which was made up of 50 men, was would need to be mostly autonomous. The commander of the section, a lieutenant, would have to determine how to move his section or delegate even further down to half sections or even squads. The responsibility for decisions had to move back down the officer ladder due to communication challenges. These would be present for most of the 20th century. Uh, Basically, there was no form of technology that allowed for easy communication between an officer and his men. All that an officer had was his voice, and this put serious limitations on how many men he could easily command during combat when they were dispersed, and not in a compact formation where just the general mass of men could keep others moving forward. This shift back to an 1875 style of dispersed formations would last until the start of the war, and would be in place in 1914, even if it was not always uh, correctly applied. There was still some ambiguity about when precisely the final assault should be launched. Everybody agreed that firepower was still a part of that equation, but it was difficult to determine when enough firepower had been leveraged against the defenders. One final comment about these regulatory evolutions. There was a large amount of discussion among officers and military thought leaders about how to attack, and theories around attacking changed over time as these discussions took place. However, there was not nearly as much time spent discussing what would happen after the attack was launched. The areas not discussed were around exploitation of successful attacks, and then also properly defending the territory gained by these attacks. The lack of brain power spent in considering these pieces of military actions would result in many of the failures of all of the armies in 1914 and beyond. When it came to preparing for a war, and also validating the regulations that had been created, the French borrowed another tradition from the Prussians, and that was the tradition of annual maneuvers. These would begin in 1874 and continue until 1914. During these maneuvers, the French army would have large units, generally topping out at the core level, confronting one another in various scenarios. One important piece of this setup though, that was while these units up to levels of corps were involved, they were often greatly below wartime strength. This meant that while there might be a corps or divisional staff, they would actually be controlling just a small fraction, a quarter or even a tenth of the number of men that they would command during the war. This was important because such small numbers of men greatly reduced some of the staffing and command challenges that would be faced. It was felt that this did not undermine the goals of the maneuvers though, which was to get the men at the front In some kind of semi-realistic combat scenario, and also to provide training to staff and officers in trying to command large-scale units on the move. In isolation, having fewer men involved probably would not have sabotaged the maneuvers, or at least robbed them of most of their value, but the French had other habits that would do just that. First of all, the scenarios that would be used for a given year were generally given to the officers involved months before the maneuvers started, Then at a small unit level, the men would generally start off the day participating in the maneuvers, but then generally stop around lunchtime to eat and prepare to spend the night in the field. In both of these cases, the problem was that the maneuvers were not replicating the unpredictability and frantic nature of real combat. One French military theorist, uh, Joseph Montelet, Uh, thought that these problems went much deeper, though, and in fact the deficiencies were not just robbing the maneuvers of value, but were in fact actively harmful to the French military. He would say, quote, The large-scale maneuvers were the very opposite of an education. Everything about them was conventional, fictional, and incoherent. Officers learned nothing, and the soldiers even less. In fact, it was worse than that. They formed bad habits, whilst their senior commanders learned to be content with appearances and with vagueness, and to be taken in by illusions criticism of the maneuvers would continue until 1913, which would see the last maneuvers before the start of the First World War. At that time, Joffre would write that, quote, From an army corps level, minds are not prepared for the conditions of modern warfare. In too many cases, minds were still paralyzed by the habits of routine. Above all, knowledge about strategy was almost completely non-existent. In the final run-up to the war, the key player in French military thought, and one of the real drivers behind the sort of offensive-at-all-cost style of French attacking, was Louis Lujot de Gramasson who in 1907 would be a lieutenant colonel. Gramasson represented the most extreme offensive school of thought in the French military. It was a school that believed in constant attacks and, just as importantly, discounted many technological advancements. They placed their faith in the infantryman and his rifle. And in fact, words like machine guns, heavy artillery, and airplanes almost never even appear in his writings. Now, while it's easy to place all of the blame for this rejection of technology at the feet of Grammont, this mostly just represented the final form of a very kind of systematic rejection of technology that had been happening in the French military since 1870. There were certainly very skilled technical officers in the French military, many coming out of the polytechnique, and the French had some impressive pieces of technology available to them, like the French 75, which was probably the most well-known. However, it was felt that technical officers, while great for building bridges or commanding artillery, did not really know how to wage war. This meant that officers coming out of the polytechnique or officers who put too much stock in the technology of the day were generally not put in positions where they were writing regulations or promoted to staff positions or really even commanding large units. Officers of the Grand Masson School did not ignore that various technologies like machine guns existed. They just believed that they did not change the overall equations of war. Or if they did, they either helped the attackers or they made attacking even more paramount. They would use the increase in firepower of the defenders as a way to prove that the offensive must be launched and carried out as fast as absolutely possible. They also believed that the overall increase in firepower of the armies of Europe made attacking easier. This was based around the ambiguity I mentioned earlier about when to launch the final assault. Even Grand Mason believed that unleashing as much fire at the defenders as the, inf- as the infantry prepared for its attack was critical, which was one of the reasons that French officers liked the rapid firing but still very mobile 75. But they believed that machine guns in the 75 allowed the French army to reach the point where enough firepower had been unleashed on the defenders to launch the final assault even faster. This was seen as a very good thing. Next episode, we will get to see how all of these theories and all this evolution and kind of confusion would, would affect the French army in 1914. Obviously, it'll be pretty negative. But I do want to end this episode, uh, sort of this military thought evolution episode before the war, by saying that many of these thoughts, many of these theories, um, many of these regulations were very similar to what was happening in other armies. The French were not, you know, looking back, it's very tempting to say that the French were rejecting technology, they were being bluntly stupid, Uh, they were ignoring the reality of the situation. And that's really easy to say in hindsight, but at the times, the French theorists were coming to many of the same conclusions as many of the other armies of Europe. Sure, maybe they valued some things uh, more than others, uh, like the elan of their troops, the sort of attacking spirit, Uh, but it wasn't greatly out of line with what everybody else believed. And so when you look at the military theories around Europe between 1870 and 1914, many share some of the very same evolutions uh, that the French were seeing, like the the sort of trying to grapple with technology, what it meant for attacking and defending and fighting war. And so it, while it's tempting to blame this period of time for many of France's failures in 1914 all the way to 1918... That was not necessarily the case, and we'll talk about why that wasn't necessarily the case uh, next episode when we talk about the French uh, evolution between 1914 and 1918 specifically. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode for that discussion.